0: to Discourse from the Big Chair. I'm Steve Cuff and joining me is Steve Coleman and this is a Tears for Fears podcast. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say it's the most popular Tears for Fears podcast on the internet because I'm pretty sure we're the only one. So if this is your first time listening, here's how this works. A couple months ago, Steve Coleman approached me and he said, hey, let's do a Tears for Fears podcast. And I said, I've never really listened to them. Why the hell would I listen to Tears for Fears? Turns out Steve is a Tears for Fears super fan. So we've been going through each of their albums together in in chronological order. I'm listening for the first time. Steve is listening for probably the millionth time. And then we're talking about it. Now, I'm also on media blackout mode. So I don't read interviews. I don't look up background information. I'm not on the Wikipedia page. I'm just listening to the album, taking it for what it is. Uh, Steve, this is a very special week for us because we are on the verge of seeing Tears for Fears in concert this weekend, which will be the culmination of this whole project we've been doing, and we are about to discuss the final Tears for Fears studio album. Well, until they put out a new one, presumably. (laughs) Now, last week I, I caught a little bit of flack from the Tears for Fears faithful because I was not a big fan of Raul and the Kings of Spain. You
1: and I both, actually. I got a little bit of flack, too. You
0: defended Uh, (laughs) it. I don't know how you got flack.
1: I didn't support it enough, apparently. Jesus.
0: Well, I mean, I I can understand, and and that's fine. You know, people are passionate about this band. Obviously, some of them really like the album. A few people said it was actually their favorite album. I'm wondering, um, among fans, what's the least favorite Tears for Fears album? Because I can think of bands you know, that I love, I can think of great directors of movies, I can think of great authors, and they all have a few things where I'm just like, eh, not really my thing. So isn't Raul and the King of Spains, isn't, isn't that the album that Tears for Fears fans don't generally like? Or is there another one that they tend to kind of distance themselves from? Or do they just love everything?
1: I, will, I would say that they probably love everything, but to varying degrees, at least in my experience in discussing with other fans what their favorite albums are. Sure, sure. I don't really know for sure, but I would say that Raul and the Kings of Spain is actually an album that a lot of fans are very passionate about, because as we discussed last week, it's a very personal album for Roland mm-hmm. Um but apart from that... I would say maybe the least discussed albums would probably be maybe Elemental, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of Seeds of Love, and probably the uh, record we're going to be talking about today.
0: Which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. The album that we're going to be talking about today is Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. And here's my big hot take, Tears for Fears fans. I think this might be the best Tears for Fears record. I agree
1: with you wholeheartedly. This is definitely, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before in previous episodes, it's between this and The Hurting that's my absolute favorite album.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that this album is so good, it it was shocking to me. And not because, you know, I'm some Tears for Fears hater, uh, even though some people (laughs) might think that, but just because this came out, what, like 20, 25 years after the band formed? And after they had taken, like, a decade-long hiatus, is that correct?
1: Yeah, at least uh, this is where we get Kurt Smith back into the fold. Yeah. Um, he's been gone. This album came out in 2004. He'd been gone since 90. He hadn't been on Tears for Fears records since Seeds of Love. Um, and one thing yeah, I do want like, to mention that's... just before fans say anything, um, they weren't completely inactive, at least after Raul and the Kings of Spain came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roland Dorisville actually released a solo album in 2001, which had the unfortunate coincidence of coming out on uh, 9-11 in Ouch. the U.S.
0: That's not good.
1: No. Um, and uh, Kurt Smith actually left the music industry like in about 93, but resurfaced in the New York music scene in about 97, I want to say. 97, 98. Okay. And put out a solo record that he's actually stood behind since then. Mm-hmm. And they reunited sometime between... Kurt Smith's solo album and Roll and solo album. So we're talking about in the year 2000.
0: Okay, so they, they weren't completely inactive. But uh, just to kind of create a comparison here, the fact that this record is so good, and we're going to dive into it and talk all about that, it still blows my mind. Because I assume that they were still doing things under various monikers and probably playing with other musicians and doing other stuff. You know, guys like them that are so obsessive with the kind of music that they create, it would make sense that they would keep creating in, in one form or another. But I I always go back to like I don't know big important rock bands. So say the Rolling Stones or something. Um so, you know, when when they weren't quite as active as they had been throughout their career and you know, like Mick Jagger was doing solo albums, can you imagine if if I sat down on a podcast today and was just like, "Oh, Steel Wheels and, and Dirty Work are the best Rolling Stones records." Like has anyone <laughs> has literally anyone ever said that? It, it's just it's mind-blowing because Normally what happens with bands is they have these big bursts of of creativity and they make awesome music and then, you know, life kind of gets in the way of that and a lot of times they lose inspiration or they follow their passions elsewhere or they reunite and they're just not, they don't have that connection anymore. And here, I almost feel like they're just picking up right where they left off. Like this feels like, to me, like just the logical next step after the Seeds of Love. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So... Yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and actually dive into the first track, because it's got kind of this soft opening that I really like. Yeah. Whoa, That I'm going to totally botch. Let's try that one more time, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very professional podcast. I definitely don't have a cell phone plugged into a $20 mixer right now. Which is the same thing they
1: do on You Talking You two to Me, by the way.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad professional podcasts and professional podcasting networks use our same strategies. Um, so this song, and I'm going I'm to turn it down just a little bit so I can hear myself talk. Yeah. Um, this song kind of has this soft opening, and instantly it kind of hits you. Like, the production is so, 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 so different on this record, especially compared to the, the last two that we've discussed. And then, if it'll kick in here after about a minute... Come on guys, here we go. Here we go. Here it comes. I love this so much. Wake up, your time is nearly over. Steve, I wish I you would <laughs> look at my face when I heard this. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh? And then this little drum fill, and I just like, oh shit, this is really good. Yeah. Um, uh, talk about all the reasons why i love this so this is like a total i don't know like their day in the life beatles Sgt. peppers kind of moment here mm-hmm. and i i just love how stylistically it just it changes abruptly but it's the it's just the best it's the most pleasant surprise <laughs> ever you know i thought i when as as i heard the opening of this record i'm like oh i wonder if this is just gonna be another like kind of you know somber mid-tempo affair here I, I was afraid i was like oh no what if there's more butt rock i don't know what's gonna happen um but no, it's just, it's so fun and nice. And then Kurt Smith is back and the beginning of the song has that really cool line And it's just like, oh my God. I got, yeah. I got really excited. <laughs> like child, childlike glee when I was listening to this. Something uh, I never thought I would experience listening to a Tears for Fears record.
1: <laughs> well, I'll go right off the bat and say like, obviously Kurt Smith is back. Um, mm. But a lot of the credit, and I don't think he gets enough credit, is... Uh, when Tears for Fears reunited, uh, Kurt Smith brought along this guy, Charlton Pettis, mm-hmm. who is their co-producer, co-wrote a lot of the songs with them on this record, mm-hmm. uh, which is another, uh, another strange thing. Like, Kurt Smith shows up in writing credits for two-thirds of this album, which is unheard of for a Tears for Fears album.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think a lot of the credit, at least to, like, I mean, definitely has that Tears for Fears production quality and that it's big mm-hmm. and it's bright. Absolutely. But I think he brings a lot of like kind of like that vintage sort of style to it as well.
0: Oh, totally, totally, and it actually it, it kind of blends those styles really well. Like, obviously, you can hear the '80s pop influence, but at the same time, I think the fact that that they were recording this in 2004 instead of say 1994, like wherever production quality was in terms of technology, in terms of trends, it, it's certainly working in their favor here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what I want to know. And this is kind of a broad question. Why wasn't this album a thing? Like, why until I, I met you? Why had I, I never heard of this before? Now, I, I've done the media blackout thing. I didn't read interviews. I didn't read reviews. I didn't go in any of that. But when this album came out, 2004, and I'm assuming they toured behind it and, you know, did what they could. Yep. Uh, I, was, I was working. I was probably in college when this came out. Yeah, 2004, I was working at a radio station. I We got boxes of CDs every single week of new releases. Why? I, I've, I never heard of this. I never saw it. Why Why wasn't this record a hit, Steve? I have a few different theories, um, if
1: you'll indulge me for a few moments.
0: Oh, no, absolutely, man. Go all um, like smiles on me. My initial
1: theory is that um, they were originally, so this this album came out uh, September 14th, 2004, Mm -hmm. almost exactly 11 years ago from today, um, just a few days off. But uh, it was originally supposed to be released in early 2004 in April, and they had signed a new record contract with Arista Records. Okay. Um, And at the time, like, Outkast was on the label, Usher was on the label, but the label was, like, losing a lot of money <laughs> right mm-hmm. at the time that they were signed and they were signed by uh antonio la reed okay who that's did a weird. Lot of stuff yeah and he was like championing them he was championing their return he's the guy who signed them to this new big record contract it was going to be this big international release and then i think like maybe about a month or two before they were supposed to release this album on arista mm-hmm. uh la reed was let go or he was fired from his CEO position. Oh, jeez. And I think that that kind of definitely scared Tears for Fears a little bit. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. Like, this guy was, like, going to take this thing to the moon. Uh, We need to rethink this. So they wound up leaving Arista. And it took them a few months. I remember being very active, you know, on websites and stuff at this point. Because I'm in college at this point, too. And a lot of people were freaking out like, "Oh it's they're never going to release this al- this album." They had already begun promoting uh, the first single closest thing to heaven at this point, and all of a sudden it just stopped mm-hmm. and uh, it wound up becoming uh, part of a universal records release uh, in September. So I think that initial like leaving a label and switching at the eleventh hour kind of affected. The album's promotion, even though it was pretty heavily promoted, sure. but I think Universal promoted them as sort of like a legacy act,
0: oh. rather
1: than say like, "Hey, here's a brand new album that's really good." But they think they wanted to really promote. They were more interested in promoting Tears for Fears' back catalog than this brand new album. Mm-hmm. I remember advertisements showing, you know, "Hey, everybody loves a happy ending, but you can also get these records." Like in every promotional material that came, all the promotional material that came out. Mm-hmm. And in 2004, we're also seeing this resurgence of these newer bands that are all trying to sound like either Gang of Four uh, or even trying to sound like Tears for Fears, but the way Tears for Fears sounded in, like, 83, 85.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, think,
1: and I think, like, there was so much nostalgia for the 80s at this point. When this record came out, It this isn't an 80s record. This is just a good record by <laughs> yeah. a band that happened to be very popular in the 80s. So I think that that may be maybe affected like certain like radio stations from not playing it as much. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that whole legacy act tag that was kind of thrown upon them. I think people wanted more of like the old stuff. And this is right after Gary Jules had that big hit with his cover of mad world. So Mm -hmm. I think people were wanting more of that moody synthesizer type sound and they weren't going to get it here. And I think maybe that like, pissed off a few music critics at the time because they wanted more of the old Tears for Fears instead of this new band.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking that too, like, it's a shame because there's all these bands that suddenly got really popular where you can clearly hear that 80s kind of new wave influence. So, you know, bands like The Killers and Hot Hot Heat are raking in the money, but (laughs) Tears for Fears, who clearly inspired them, just kind of gets brushed under the rug. Um, I also think a big part of that, too, has to do with the fact that garage rock and, like, oh, who's going to save rock and roll? That was still a big thing in the early to mid-2000s, even though that's a stupid thing. That's, oh, um, yeah, like, the Vines came around that time, too. Oh, yeah, the Vines and the Hives and all the the bands, basically, that it's just like, hey, what if the White Stripes were shitty? Um, <laughs> basically but anyways uh yeah so that that was another big trend and clearly this doesn't fall into that and it's hilarious too because if i if i had to kind of pinpoint a time period where this album would really fit in it'd probably be like 2014 instead of 2004 yeah absolutely other, other than the clear like beatles influence and this kind of high gloss production um this album it almost has like a a proto-Tame Impala feel to it at times, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the production. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It sounds so fresh. This does not sound like an album that's 10 years old. No, not at all. from a band that had been together on and off for 25 years at that point. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, hey, let's talk about that first single then because that's actually the second track on this album. Yeah. I'm going to cue uh, it up for you, baby.
1: I remember this being a big deal. It was the first new Tears for Fear song I'd heard since 95.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Got that backwards guitar in the intro. So let me tell you why I love this song, Steve. All right. Uh... One, I I love his long O's. (laughs) What am I going to (laughs) do? Sorry, I have a terrible voice. Anyway, uh, I love this song because I feel like this could have been a song on an earlier Tears for Fears album, like Elemental or Rolling the Kings of Spain or something like that. This would have been a song that with that kind of production and where the band was at that point, I don't think I would have liked it very much. Mm-hmm. but because of the situation that this song is in, like the, the, just the production and the fact that there's some other hands kind of guiding Roland Orzabal here and keeping him on track, this is a great song. It's got that classic Tears for Fears sound, but it feels a little bit more restrained in the best way possible. And it's just pretty. It's, like a, it's a beautiful song. Yeah, and, and there's something, there's like
1: a very raw quality to it as well like the drumming especially Mm -hmm. is always like i remember the first time i heard it like the drums and that bass line that goes throughout the song like just that like it's like a very melodic bass line yeah and then like i said those drums are just so raw and i believe and i know at the time i read an interview and they were talking about how that was basically just roland orzable's guide drum and they were going to have a session dr- a session drummer come in and play the drums, but they just wound up keeping the guide drum track, and I think it works wonderfully.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's a good point, too. The rhythm section is so good
1: on mm-hmm. this
0: record, and that's one of the things that I feel like uh, the, the previous couple of records were sort of lacking, in. And, and those are the things that irked me the most, I think, about Elemental and, and Raul. It's just the flat production and then just the lack of that rhythm section to kind of keep everything together and keep everything grounded. Because whether he knows it or not, I think that kind of stuff helps keep Roland Orzabal sort of, I I don't want to say like tied down, like it's not like restricting him in any way, but it just sort of like it grounds him in a way that that makes the music better. And we're going to get into that a little bit more too because there's a couple other tracks that I think showcase that even better. But yeah, I, I don't know... Why this wasn't like a single that I actually heard on the radio or had the chance to play on the radio. And it's not like we didn't even get some legacy act stuff coming through. Like I remember uh, sometime in the mid 2000s, there was like a a Duran Duran record came out and we got it at the records at the record uh, or the record, the uh, radio station. And me and my friend Adam, we would just we would we would just kind of play it and, and laugh at it and make fun of it. We wouldn't actually play it on the air, but like at least it was there. Yeah, and I remember that album came out
1: around the same time, which is another thing too. When this album came out, there were a lot of "quote unquote" legacy acts that were coming out with their reunion album at this mm-hmm. time, like Duran Duran. Their first album in so many years was coming out, and it was, from what I remember, pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, oh, those- and then I think, like, Billy Idol came out with an album at this point, too. It was just, like, all of these sort of acts that were known as being 80s acts were suddenly coming back with these mediocre records. But they were getting more pressed, I think, maybe just because they had more aggressive management. Or maybe they were just slightly more mainstream than Tears for Fears ever was.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, and I think – I don't know. It's just – it's so weird. I feel so bad for their, like, record label situation – because i mean we would get things just like bottom of the barrel crap from big record labels they would they would still send that shit to us and you know and we and we somehow still didn't get tears for fears which is it's very bizarre and i'm almost happy because i feel like i would have written it off you know 18 19 year old steve cuff would not have <laughs> like even given that record a chance, mm. so I'm almost happy because now I feel like I can listen to it and not be a jaded, you know, angsty 18 year old about it. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I guess that's a bonus. But still, it's I don't know. It's it's sort of depressing at some level. Uh, do you? Can we move to the next track? Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, let's do it, man. Here we go. I get I get some questions about this song, Steve. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I I get some questions, but I have to fill some time because I gotta I gotta play the chorus for you. Uh, Not that you haven't heard it before, but for our listeners, actually, I'm just gonna play this. We'll get to the chorus, then we'll talk. I want you to listen very carefully to this chorus. Okay, so I love this song. It's it's kind of like a a jangly, early '90s Brit pop kind of track. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really catchy. Um, I, I've caught myself whistling it around the office a lot, a whole lot <laughs> <the> past <laughs> week. But the one thing I can't shake, it sounds the chorus sounds exactly like the laws. There she goes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it's gotten a lot of comparison to that chorus. I've never, I mean, I could see some similarities, but I would never go ahead and say, like, it's the exact same thing.
0: No, no, huh. I don't I don't think it's the exact same thing. I think it's just how, you know, how his, like the, the phrasing and the timing are sort of probably about the same, and then just how he goes into the falsetto there. But it's funny to me because I wonder if any of that was was consciously done. I mean, we'll never know, but... It, it's, it's funny because the laws, were they were clearly, clearly influenced heavily by Tears for Fears. So it's funny that, you know, it, this song almost works as like a callback to the bands that came after Tears for Fears that were sort of in their wake mm-hmm. and were popular in England after them. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun song. It's a good pop song. And it seems like something, especially because I believe the forgettable 90s and early 2000s group, uh, Sixpence, None the Richer. Ooh. Covered, uh, covered. There she goes, and it was a pretty good hit for them. Pretty big hit, if I remember. So you know what? I think if this song came out, it probably would have been an even bigger hit. Was was this ever a single? Not this, that it would have gotten a push.
1: This was actually it was their uh, once they switched back to Universal Records. This was the single that they pushed, and it was released to uh, a few radio stations. I think it actually did chart sort of on the lower end of like the adult contemporary charts which is oh, probably a mistake because i shouldn't have even been on adult contemporary uh. but uh they did uh, when they were doing the media rounds to promote the album they did this song on like leno they did it on conan they did it on ellen so they performed this song on tv a lot like f- for like about a month and a half i remember them doing it on jimmy kimmel at one point and even uh Last Call, Carson Daly. I video like I take these all in my dorm room in college.
0: <laughs> Got the old uh, v- VHS or the the VCR timer set to record <laughs> your six hour long blank VHS tape.
1: I don't even think we had a timer. I think I made my roommate tape them, and we had like a TV VCR, one of those like tiny <laughs> oh, the single combo. unit things. Yeah,
0: those are great because after a while, like either the TV or the VCR would break, and then that would automatically have you handcuffed to a piece of useless technology
1: (laughs) right (laughs) thankfully this never broke down but yeah i uh so in and going back to the song yeah it was pushed as the first single but um i just i don't i remember at the time being frustrated thinking like this is a perfect pop song this should be a big hit and it
0: just never got its due nothing nothing wow man that's unbelievable yeah there's so many good bob songs on here and you know what? I, I've I've talked about this before. Like, if if you're diving into Tears for Fears for the first time, if you've been listening and you're kind of interested, uh, I think the best it might be the best place to start is to just like, I don't know, listen to side one of this record, and you're gonna you're gonna enjoy this band a lot. But we'll talk more about that. Um, let's go into Size of Sorrow. Is that cool? Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's do it. Now this Which is. is- for my money, this is like the most 80s sounding song on the record probably, I'd say. Especially this intro here. Got these cool drums that sort of like pan from the left channel to the right channel. Yeah, it sort of
1: has those old Tears for Fears roots to it and it's actually the oldest song on the album. Interesting. Uh, a little bit of history, they actually performed this on the Elemental tour. And uh, Roland Orsable had Gail and Dorsey, his bassist at the time, sing lead during their shows. Oh. So it's kind of odd to hear Kurt Smith has his first solo song on this record, or at least where he's the lead vocalist to like be singing an old Tears for Fears song from a time he wasn't in the band.
0: Yeah, that is kind of bizarre. That's really weird.
1: I will say, like, this is very different from the original live version. The original live version was a bit more bluesy, kind of like a blues rock influence. And this is sort of, um, I don't really know how I would describe this song, at least as far as, like, if you're going to use some sort of genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of their, um, I mean, you've mentioned in the last few episodes, there's always kind of like that one point where they'll just kind of go to, like, a down-tempo song, midway yeah, through. Sure. With yeah, like yeah, yeah. Side. And this is definitely that moment. And um, I was really looking forward to hearing this song when I heard they were going to be recording it. And uh, initially, I was a little let down just because I was looking forward to this kind of, like, more bluesy, not that I'm a huge blues rock fan, (laughs) (laughs) meaning, like, you know, faux white boy blues kind of rock. I didn't mean like that. But uh, I was kind of looking forward to that, and this was a lot different than I expected it. And it was a little, I mean, I don't think it's adult contempo, but it has a bit of that kind of like sleepy quality. And I don't mean sleepy, mean boring, but just kind of like, I wasn't quite ready for that tranquil moment in the album, four songs in. Mm. Um, But that being said, I don't think this is a bad song. I don't think it's necessarily a weak moment, but it's kind of the one where I'm just sort of like, ah, this is maybe only one time, the only time in this album I'm kind of like, I wish maybe it would have been pushed in a slightly different direction.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. Um, it definitely falls into the, the, the mid-album slump. I mean, not that it's a bad song, but just, you know, they kind of like, okay, we're going to take the, the air out of the sails. I really like it because it kind of goes back to some of the stuff that they experimented with on The Hurting, where you just have, there's a lot of noises and sounds in this song that just sort of flicker in and out of the background but they're not consistently like there's, there's noises in here that you'll hear like one time for like two, three seconds. And then they're just boom gone. And then you're not going to hear them again. Uh, So it's, it kind of harkens back to that more experimental side. And I can kind of see the adult contemporary angle here too. And I think a part of that is because Roland Orzabal for better and for worse um, and Kurt Smith, they both have very pretty voices, (laughs) (laughs) very pretty voices. Yeah, absolutely. So, when they sing certain songs, certain types of songs, kind of like this one, there's just a tendency to you know it just the song leans automatically towards adult contemporary. Just so, just like you can you can throw Tom Waits onto any song and make it creepy. If you throw Tears for Fears on any song, it also, it automatically becomes a lot prettier. Um, and and I think just kind of the big production and the bombast of the first three tracks on here. And and just the way they sort of you know play around with Britpop and things like that, it kind of hides that a little bit to a degree. And then this is them just kind of like you know getting back into Tears for Fears mode. Mm-hmm. All right, let me uh, let me put it on the next track. We're bringing it back up again, man. Yeah, in uh, a
1: pretty big way.
0: Yeah. So this song is "Who Killed Tangerine," which is. Again, a lot of that that Beatles influence is obvious here. Yeah, but also it's it's almost like Prague s and a few sometimes, and it seems kind of high concept too. Can you what what the hell is the song even about, Steve? Can you kind of like explain this to me? What's going on?
1: I don't think there's ever been a real the story that Roland Orzabal would tell in interviews and on stage during this tour is that he was it was while they were working on writing new material and I think either Kurt Smith or Charlton Pettison kind of came up with like the opening chords you hear in the song. And he was trying to like think of like words to write. And he heard a song on a independent radio station in LA. And he thought that this band was singing a song called who killed Tangerine. And he just really liked that title. And it turns out they were actually singing something like who stole my tambourine. (laughs) <laughs> and well, so then he was kind of like, oh, yeah, let's let's write a song called Who Killed Tangerine? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's, like, based on any sort of, like, news story about some woman who went missing, but I think it's just uh, him using his imagination to write a song and kind of, like, get this rousing chorus out there.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the Tame Impala is really showing through here. And I wonder... I wonder if they they've, they've got to be familiar with Tears for Fears, Tame Impala. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, band from England with you know members who are obsessed with production. They've they've got to be familiar. But this song is like it's probably the best headphones track on the record. Uh, like the way that the vocals are layered, you can't really tell when you're listening through computer speakers or just in like earbuds or something. But uh, there's this just like really subtle difference in the diff- in the vocal tracks. And it really shines through and kind of adds a whole other layer to uh, the song. And then on top of that, just the drums, the snare especially—it's kind of got this like march to it, and it really pops. And God, there's just there's so much cool shit going on in this song. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Let me let me say that in the most articulate way possible.
1: <laughs> well, it's just the way that like the second half of that song where I. Comes to when you get the secondary chorus, when you think it's all over, it's not over. Oh, and just yeah. every time they sing that line, like something else gets added on. It just builds and builds and builds mm-hmm. and builds.
0: Oh, absolutely! Here we go. It's not over. It's not over. Oh yeah, there's just oh, there's so much cool stuff going on. I mean, and it's got those like soaring kind of strings too. And then yeah, during the second chorus. Whoever's playing guitar, like the second guitar part, it's it's only in like the right channel of the mix. But he's basically just got this guitar that's super super distorted and overdriven. It just sounds like he's just like pounding on it, but it still mm-hmm. is like in a really melodic way. It's really interesting, and I, I hope they play this live when we see them. Because oh you know,
1: god, like- yeah, that'd be so cool. I don't know if they will, but uh, they they have played this live. This actually, I would say, was probably. Of all the songs on this album, it was probably the closest to actually being a hit. Oh, really? Um, it was. Um, it was promoted on ESPN for like the 2005 baseball season. Really? Uh, and they wow. like played it in stadiums for a while. And I think it was in that <laughs> it was in that movie with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, uh, Fever Pitch. <laughs> it's featured on the soundtrack. So like it was pretty popular. I think it showed up in like a few like sports video games that year too. Like they're really trying to push it as like this big sports anthem, which I mean that works, I guess. But because, it's just you know just, it's, uh, it's
0: not over. Yeah, it's a good rally song. God, it's I mean,
1: it's such a yeah. I I would really hope that they would do the song again live. I don't know if we'll get that opportunity, but it's not. I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility either. I've, I've yeah. the first time I ever saw them in concert, they definitely did this song, and it was one of those moments where I don't think the crowd was familiar with it enough. But man, if like the whole audience was like really into this song, it would be like such a cool moment in
0: oh, a live totally, show. Totally. I, I'm, and my mind is now blown that this was like briefly a sports anthem because. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that the band was signed by L.A. Reid, who, if you're listening right now, I believe is famous for signing like TLC in the '90s. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, TLC uh, and
0: probably like <laughs> Boys to Men or something. I don't know. Usher. Sure. Uh, Usher. Yeah, all, all, all of the all the '90s R&B stars. So that's weird. So the guy who's famous for signing TLC signs Tears for Fears, and then they jump ship to another record label who pushes this crazy, like, super British pop rock Beatles, almost Prague song as, like, a stadium anthem. That's just, mm-hmm. like, I. that's mind-blowing. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> and I know,
1: like, L.A. Reed was, like, behind this whole project when they were working on it. Um, mm. In fact, I think there are, like, I have at least one copy of this album where he's still listed as the executive producer.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Unbelievable. Is this on vinyl?
1: Um, No, I wish it was, though. my God. I'm tempted to tweet at Roland Orsable and Kurt Smith all the time, just say, hey, what would it take for me to just have you make one copy of this on high-quality vinyl with, like, a gatefold sleeve? Because the artwork to this record is also, like, really awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, and, jeez, there's so many, like, 180 gram like vinyl remasters. You could do like a gateful double LP for this. And oh man, even if you made it like a limited edition like a record store day thing, that would be so cool. So cool. That,
1: that's a it's my dream vinyl get and I don't think it'll ever exist, but oh. god, if it ever does, I'd be the first in
0: line. I would I would probably be right there with you because <laughs> after after listening to this all week, that was the one thing kind of in the back of my mind. And especially when this song was played, I was like, God, I want this on vinyl. I just want to listen to this in my living room, on my record player, through my nice speakers. But, yeah. Wow. Jeez. I can't believe that's... And again, if this would have came out in 2014, I feel like a broken record. Uh, that pun not intended. <coughs> uh, if this would have came out in 2014, I think it would have got a better reception. I think it would have gotten more press coverage. I think they probably wouldn't have had to jump ship. They probably could have, like, crowdfunded the thing. Who knows? And it definitely would have gotten a vinyl release by someone, so... Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's unbelievable.
1: I mean, there's hope for their next album whenever that comes out, whenever they're finished with that, which it will. They're actually signed to Warner Brothers Records at this point.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Which is really strange but really cool.
0: Yeah, that Uh, is cool. Well, hopefully. Hopefully it comes out. And, hey, guys, if you're listening, Kurt, Roland, if you're listening... I'll press it for you, okay? I'll, I can do 500 copies for three grand. That's it.
1: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but yeah,
0: but me, and, I, me and Steve each get one. We'll hand number the rest and, and sell them and then make our money <laughs> back. And then give you the rest. <laughs> we'll kickstart it. We'll kickstart it. That'd be great. I'm sure they'd really appreciate that. I, I legitimately kind of want to do that. but Oh, my God. <laughs> I wish. I wish. One day we can dream. We can dream. Okay, let's let's get to the next track. Keep us moving along here
1: yeah this is actually the first thing i ever did for optimism vaccine by the way was right about this record
0: oh yeah yeah you did which was i think we talked about this on on an earlier episode but it was crazy because you wrote that great article about this album and i hadn't met you yet i just like you had been referred to us through sean and i read this article i'm like what the hell tears for fears in like the year of our Lord 2013 like what is going on here and then it was hilarious because me and Myros were both just like well it's really good like it's great writing and you know tears for fears whatever and then immediately it was it got more hits than like any article we had written like just the response was overwhelming so yeah it was it's really cool uh, okay, I got it queued up finally. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Sorry for the deviation. No, no problem, man. All right, here we go. Hey, it's the quiet one.
1: Which I think this is the most 90s sounding song on the album.
0: Oh, my God. I'm so happy you said that because in my notes, I only have two sentences this is exactly I'm going to read you this verbatim the most 90s tears for fears sounding song on this record and then I wrote not great but I don't ever skip it yeah it's it's really
1: good I I, um the more I listen to the song the more I really appreciate it but uh it sort of reminds me of like what a a song from Elemental would have sounded like had Kurt Smith still been in the band
0: yeah I, I think that's a fair comparison that's actually a great great way to describe it um, yeah, because... And I'm glad that it exists on this record and not something like Elemental because I think, yeah, Kurt Smith adds a lot to it. I think the production is more complementary to the song itself. I think, for one reason or another, it just it never stuck out to me. Like, even when I was going back through and I was jotting down notes and things, I would accidentally skip this song without even thinking about it. Um, or I'd be at work... And I would I would accidentally skip the song. And be like, Wait, what? What just <laughs> like it just sort of washes over me for one reason or another. It's not a bad track, not not by any means. It's it's a bit of an anomaly. I
1: it sort of it definitely sticks out compared to the rest of the album. I, I think it fits with the rest of the record, but it's definitely like all of a sudden there's almost this like proto rock song that just sort of shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, or not proto rock, but like a mid nineties rock song, sure, sure. And, I, and I don't think it sounds dated. Like I don't think that, but it definitely has kind of like that, like I said, mid nineties Tears for Fears influence, at least Absolutely. with like the the way the guitar sounds. But I think like the production is reined in enough to like kind of like bring it back to where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good song, and it, it's definitely one that I forget about every now and then too. But that's saying a lot, though, because I mean, there's so much big and great material on this record that if this is the song that i kind of think about the least that's actually (laughs) i think a compliment to the song Mm
0: -hmm. oh totally totally uh now yeah the thing about this song too is it's it's definitely it's got that 90s influence but and, and even if i do forget about it or you know accidentally skip over it whatever uh at least it doesn't make me frown like some of the other 90s Tears for Fears tracks. At no point am I scowling at my desk listening to this album, and one of my coworkers walks by and says, You know, what's the matter with your life? Did someone come and shoot your wife? And I go, No, I just, I don't like this song. Like, that didn't happen at all to me. Oh, <laughs> I had to make one more jab. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Raul and the Kings of Spain fans are getting their pitchforks. Oh, boy. No. they're coming for me uh i jest i jest okay (laughs) so let's move on to the next couple of tracks and this is sort of like the next few songs especially i feel like these are this is like the hangover after just the 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 bombast and how big of a pop record (laughs) the -hmm. first side of this album is
1: I do love the second side though, but uh, we'll get into it more. But uh, oh, yeah. we can. Uh... Oh shit!
0: Sorry Oop. for the sorry for the swears.
1: Oh no worries. So we're gonna stick go to Who You
0: Are, right? Yeah, my phone's having some issues. Oh no worries. Someone's left the TV on it. Don't it's a really pretty song. No. Now, The part that really interests Someone me in this song is, it's, it's another great example of how you know, the little things here really make this track, all the things that are going on in the background. And on top of that, it does this thing at the end, it's sort of like a, a, a track one reprise? Yeah, uh, like an un,
1: uncredited track, re- title track reprise.
0: Yeah, what's up with that? Is that have they ever I talked don't... about it in interviews or anything?
1: I don't think so. I think it's just kind of like this is. I mean, this is literally like kind of like the midway point of the album. I think it just sort of connects the theme of everybody loves a happy ending. Kind of makes it come full circle. And I think this is kind of the point where we start to get into the. I don't want to say the darker material, but this is kind of like maybe waking up to a hangover, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So it just kind of adds a stream like quality, I think. It sort of um, harkens back to like a lot of like bigger pop records, like especially like the 60s and 70s. So it kind of adds a little bit of that prog rock element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of maybe even sort of like, you know, the Beatles reprising Sgt. Pepper. Sure, sure. Um, and it's interesting that Who You Are, though, is uh, the first time ever on Tears for Fears record where Roland Orsville does not have a songwriting credit.
0: Really? This is all this a-
1: Kurt? Yeah, was- this song was actually recorded before this album. Kurt Smith was working on a solo album before they started work on Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. And I think, I mean, <laughs> you could argue that maybe there was a little bit of, like, posturing going on like this is the first album together i think it's kind of like well roland orsville does have at least two or three songs in here that are written by himself mm-hmm. he'll let kurt smith have one of his solo songs on there but will tears for fearsify it. a five. yeah yeah so maybe there's a little bit of ego there but i think it works i mean it's i guess in a way it's only fair if you're kind of like i feel like the story often goes that Kurt Smith was maybe slightly pushed out of tears for fears Mm -hmm. on his own accord though. It's not like he was like, it's not like they fired him. He left, but maybe this is just a way to kind of give them creative levity and, um, give him a moment to shine. And it's, I, I initially thought that it was kind of an interesting choice because there's a lot of other solo Kurt Smith songs they could have went with, but um, it really works well on this album. At least as far as like the themes and the way it sounds, uh, the production is really good on it. I think it actually boosts the song from its original recording, mm-hmm. which is very different.
0: Huh? We're gonna have to listen to it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna dedicate an episode to all the you know B sides, alternate takes. Uh, a bunch of other things. And when we do that, I, I would really like to hear, actually, uh, the the other version of this. So, to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that leads us into... The Devil.
1: Del Diablo.
0: Tell me about El Diablo, Stephen.
1: I don't know much about Del Diablo, except uh, I love this song. Yeah,
0: it's really good. It's really, really good.
1: uh, The first time I ever listened to this record I just fell in love immediately Well, with um, most of the songs This record I did But this is just like God, this is exactly what it needs to be Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's It's really intense (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and, and this is the kind of song where I don't know, right scenario This kind of track can give you goosebumps It's just It's a really well put together song it. And it's another track, I've, I know I've said this like five times already, but seriously, if this song was recorded by them 10, 15 years ago, I don't think it would have the same impact. Like This is the kind of song that a mature, older, smarter Tears for Fears records, not, not the younger Tears for Fears or the Kurt Smithless Tears for Fears. Yeah, good track, man. Yeah, just the sound
1: effects and just the fact that it's played very straight and somber at the same time. It just and the lyrics are really good. Um, yeah, I uh, when I saw them perform for the second time, I was in uh, Orange County, California, which was a bizarre experience for different personal reasons. But anyway, um, Just like the Jack they, Black movie. Right, yes, yeah, just like the Jack Black, Colin Hanks movie, uh, not that, not that Adam Brody stuff. Uh, was it Adam Brody? I don't care. Anyway, um, yeah, he they did this song, and there's something about the way Roland Reversible sang it. Like he kind of added different fluctuations into uh the second verse and it just like it almost brought me to tears like this is just like that's how much i love the song and like and it translates so well live too and i don't think they really play it anymore but oh, god i would kill to hear it again
0: now when they play this live is it just him with the piano or do they do all the sound effects and everything and they they just they do the whole kit and caboodle <laughs> Well, it's the full band. I mean, they, don't, they can't do all the
1: sound effects, but they definitely add different types of ambiance to it. And then when the band, whole band does kick in, when they kick in on the studio version, yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, it's wonderful. I, <laughs> I love this song so much. Totally, totally. It's a great Almost,
0: track. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, best Tears for Fears album. You got me sold. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Secret World. Yeah, let's talk about that. This is like the uh this is like their blur song, basically. (laughs) Another one where I don't know, this this song it it would almost fit in better on the first half of the album. It's got this sweeping orchestral pop sound to it and it's uh you know, it's got that nineties Britpop influence. And parts of it, too, it it almost reminds me of, like, late 90s, early 2000s British pop music. Like, if if Robbie Williams didn't suck, he might write this song. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I, God, you're going to, I'm honestly going to be gushing about every song for the rest of this record right now. Just go on record and say that.
0: Gush away, man. I got nothing Um. bad to say. And, I mean, there's
1: not much else I can really say about the song, except it's just, it's beautiful. Like, it's just amazing. When I uh, one of the, when I heard this song for the first time, I just, like, couldn't believe it. I was actually listening to this album with my roommate at the time, who I don't think was really convinced that this was, that he, Tears for Fears was his bag, but then this song comes on. And he's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, and it's a fairly simple thing for them to do. Like, I don't even think, like, they're just, like, this was a very simple song, I think, for them to do, but to like bring in that that full orchestra, which is um, Paul Buckmaster is the arranger and conductor and he worked with like I don't know if he worked with the Beatles, but I know he worked with like Elton John and like oh, wow. his in the seventies for all of his orchestral arrangements, so this is like a big deal. Wow.
0: wow. Yeah, it's it's a great track and it's it's another one too where it just it kinda sneaks up on you and it's surprising in the best way. It reminds me of like the first time you hear like the first track off of the Flaming Lips soft bullets and you're like, Oh wow. I didn't know pop music could be like this. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. It kinda, like smacks you and you, it grabs your attention.
1: And it's definitely like, this reminds me a lot of like those Flaming Lips records too, you know, mm-hmm. between soft Bulletin" and, the uh, Yoshimi battles, the pink robots. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, I mean, this is a very tears for fears song and it's still one of their, um, One of their, I think it's a, I would say it's a fan favorite. It's definitely a favorite of Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith's. I think they've played it every single show since they've reunited.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So
1: we'll definitely hear it this Thursday. If we don't, I would be very surprised.
0: I hope so. I got my fingers crossed. I got my fingers crossed. Uh, Now, let's move on to the Side 2 Blur Duo. that's That's what I have written down for these two songs. Killing with Kindness, super Brit poppy, and I love it.
1: What Would even work as like a Bond theme, I think.
0: Oh, totally. No, that's that's what it reminds me of. It actually that's reminds cool. me of when I would play uh, GoldenEye on Nintendo 64, and you'd pause the game and it would have like the menu music. That's what it reminds me of. Which is a big compliment, by the way. You're yeah, like Killing with
1: Kindness sounds like a Bond movie title. But uh, yeah, again, just another song that I God I instantly fell in love with it. The way the the chorus with the drums, the do 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 do, and then gets into the guitar, and it's like the song. When I first heard it, it, was like this is why. Like everything in the song is why I like Tears for Fears. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's their best song or it's the ultimate Tears for Fears song, but this is like what defines that sound for me. And like,
0: oh, totally. I agree 100%. And it's another one, too, where it's just like, wow. Like, I was not expecting to be absolutely in love with track 10 off of a 2004 (laughs) Tears for Fierce album. And and then, like, towards the end, there's that flute solo that just comes out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, out of absolutely nowhere. Here's a flute solo.
1: But it works, for God's sakes. It's just like, how did they think that? It's like, oh, you know what? We need a flute solo here really quick. Mm
0: -hmm. Totally. Totally. All right. Yeah, I, I, I feel like such a, I, I don't know, like just the, I, I feel like a gushing fan right now. Like I don't feel like I'm adding anything. Like I should be more critical or something like that. But I, sorry, I got nothing. It's just good. It's just. Yeah, good. I, guess, I, I got, have I nothing bad to say about any of these songs. Podcast. It probably doesn't, but it's just damn good. <laughs> oh, right. boy. Hey, man, let's talk Ladybird. Let's do it.
1: The first song they wrote together when they reunited.
0: Oh, that's cute. I can see that. Now this track, who's who's singing here? Is this Kurt or is this Roland? It's uh, Roland.
1: Okay, and yeah, he does the verses. Kurt does. The...
0: Okay. I like this song because it highlights one of my favorite things about this record and why I think it might be the best Cheers for Fears album. Aside from, like, you know, great production, great songwriting, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I I, I have struggled with on and off as we've been doing this podcast series is sometimes I feel like, I don't know, like, Roland Orzbol's voice is sometimes too big for the songs that he writes. Where it's almost like he's fighting against the music with his voice. And that especially came up in... uh, you know, the, the post-Kurt Smith era where, yeah, it just, it just felt to me like he was just wrestling with the music and he wasn't sort of, you know, going with it. And this song, his voice is so restrained, but in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, damn, man, I, I, wish, I wish you could have done this for me earlier, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll he did you- it. I'll he did it, me. though. He did it. He did it. He got there. And just so, for you to
1: talk about it 11 years later. Mm-hmm.
0: But at the same time, like Kurtz, yeah, just for me. He just knew he was a smart guy. You know, it's it's tough because the music that Tears for Fears makes, it's so, it's so big and it's so just larger than life a lot of times. And I, I don't know. I haven't read any reviews of this album, but – I think that there's a tendency for critics, especially with old bands or legacy acts, they get upset when a group doesn't play it safe or do what they want them to do, like when a group keeps changing and evolving. And for better or for worse, Tears for Fears has always been sort of like moving forward steadily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I can see like if I was a smarmy rock critic for Spin or Mojo or something, I don't know, whatever the kids are reading these days, Pitchfork, I could see them just kind of, you know, poo-pooing this record because it doesn't sound like the early stuff that they're more familiar with. Yeah, that uh, definitely
1: happened a lot with this record. There were a few, like, glowing reviews, but other times it was just... I'm convinced that reviewers didn't even listen to it. They maybe just went to, like, the first 10 seconds of each song. It's like, oh, well, this doesn't sound like The or songs from The Big Chair, F.
0: Yeah. And this album, it's great. Like, for me, a lot of these songs grab me right away, but, I mean... you really get a lot out of this record when you sit down with it, you put on a good pair of headphones, and you just sort of let it wash over you and you and you take in all the little bits of it. This isn't something that you can just take little snippets of and, and kind of get it, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Alright, let's uh let's let's move to the last track here. If you don't it,
1: mind. Get the tinkling in. Twinkling, sorry, not tinkling, Jesus. I
0: think I think it is. <laughs> If you need to take a bathroom break, Steve, that's cool, man. Oh, God. Fanboy gushing. I love this song so much. This song is super sexy, which I never thought I would say about a Tears for Fears song.
1: It's, yeah, and when I first heard this record, it's like, finally, like, there's, there's like, a sexy Tears for Fears
0: song I can play. Which is fantastic, too, because... This is like, this is the last track in the album, so it's almost like, I feel like it's a tease. You know, they're like, oh, you know, we made this big British pop record, and it's so cool, there's nothing like this going on in music right now. But oh, by the way, we're also kind of interested in like, you know, soul and Motown and Marvin Gaye. God,
1: and it just, oh, they just, they knock it out of the... Or, sorry to use a cliché, but just
0: like... seriously, like, just just this big swerve out of nowhere, and they nail it. Because a lot of times bands do this thing where, you know, they have their album, and it kind of stands as a cohesive piece, and they use the last track or the last couple of tracks as their, okay, we're going to tag some stuff on here that doesn't fit with the rest of the record, but we just kind of want to throw it on there. And most of the time it doesn't work. But this, it's so different from everything else... It's so, so damn good Yeah uh, Like, it almost This might sound ridiculous, but it almost brings me
1: to tears That's how much I love this song mm-hmm. It just I it was listening to this record a lot I, I still listen to this record a lot Regardless, like, this is like constantly On my rotation
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, This song I listening to it in the past week In preparation for this podcast I was just like This might be my favorite Tears for Fears song
0: good choice it's a good choice well i gotta say i'm impressed not just with this song but with this whole album and i gotta apologize because i'm supposed to be you know a little more critical here because i don't have the fanboy glasses on i'm i'm just going i'm going full fanboy here i love this record this is a really really good album if you're listening and you're a tears for fears fan you already know how good this record is If you're listening and you're not a Tears for Fears fan, this is the real deal. You go home, you get a copy of this record, you get a copy of The Hurting, you let them wash over you, soak it all in, and then you go back and you listen to the other records. But I I would almost say, yeah, start here, and with The Hurting. Make a playlist of those two albums and just listen on repeat and it's going to click with you. So, Steve Coleman... I think, I think you've done it. I think you did it. I, are, I, I, are you a fan? I think I'm a Tears for Fears fan. Oh. If, if I could go back in time and play this album for 19-year-old me, I would hope he would like it. If not, I'd smack him upside the head. But I think he would, and I think he'd go on his 2005 MySpace page and add Tears for Fears under the bands that he likes section. Well, I know this
1: was the one album whenever I try to convince anybody that Tears for Fears was great. Like, I would play them this album and they would just be... You'd see people kind of, like, do a double take mm-hmm. on, like, any any random song you would play from this record, especially, like, the title track and uh, The Last Days on Earth. Like, oh, yeah. Just, I mean, there's nothing... <laughs> I don't think you could say anything bad about this record. I'm sure people will try, but, like... I mean, I think lyrically it's all there. Um, and it just, God, it sounds so good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I mentioned, the hurting is like probably the most unimpeachable record. This, I feel the exact same way about this record, maybe even more. So it's oh, one totally. of my favorite albums of all time, just period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've been very vocal about my love for the hurting and I thought that was going to be my runaway favorite. Which I was a little disappointed about because I was like, oh, well, we started with the one that I really liked. And, you know, the other ones, some of them been good, some of them not so good. But it sucks that I heard my favorite first. But now this, this dethrones it. Like, there's moments on the hurting where I'm like, man, you know, I, this is interesting and you guys are young and parts of it doesn't work. But there's still an endearing quality of this. And this is the sound of, like, a fully realized, mature band that is, like, completely at the top of their game. It's, it's the real deal. It's the real deal. And that's that, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's what we're going to do. I know we've, we've got a lot of people that have been listening to us. We would love, absolutely love, if you went to our iTunes page. Go on iTunes. Search for us. Search for Optimism Vaccine on iTunes. You will find us. Like the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast, whether it's one, two, three, four, five five stars. We don't care. Just just rate the podcast and write us a review. Why should you do this on our iTunes page? When you do this on iTunes, you increase our visibility. More people can hear this podcast. More people can hear about Tears for Fears. Uh, and you help me and Steve Coleman's ego. So I mean, what's better than that? right? <laughs> that's that's what this comes down to. Um, but yeah, it's. It would be great if you could do that. Uh, tell your friends about this. Pass the links around. Tell people about this. And we are not done, ladies and gentlemen, because we are going to see Tears for Fears live. We're going to do a podcast where we talk about the live show. And Steve and I are going to dive into some B-sides, some remixes. There's some crazy techno stuff that comes at the end of this record, by the way, like, like B-sides. and st- It's weird. Oh, you got the uh, UK edition, I think, huh? Yeah, I was. I, I've been listening to it at work on Spotify, and it automatically goes from this song into like some trance music or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of jarring, but we'll we'll talk about that. Also, we were contacted by someone who may or may not have hooked us up with some alternate takes of "Raul and the Kings of Spain," and he has been adamant that when I listen to This alternate mix that, to my knowledge, no one has heard outside of him and and you, of course, Steve, Mm. that it's going to change my mind about the album, which is that's that's some big words, big words. So I'm excited. I'm excited to hear those alternate mixes. Uh, Make sure you tune in. You can hear us talk about that. You can hear us talk about the show. Uh, We'll be in Detroit. So if you see two schlubs uh, probably drunk on $12 $12 Miller lights. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe that's us. And you could say hello if you're in Detroit. Just two schlubs out of the 10,000 people. Yeah. Out of the 10,000. <laughs> Just look for the two schlubs. schlubs. <laughs> Just look for the schlubs. We'll be there for you. All right, Steve, thanks as always for doing this with me. Hey, thank uh, you. We will be back soon. Check us out. Again, go to OptimismVaccine.com. And if you have questions, if you want us to answer your questions, if you have comments, we will read your comments and questions on air. Email us.
1: Maybe even suggestions for what we should listen to for the final episode.
0: That would be great. OptimismVaccine. Yes. OptimismVaccine at com. One more time. That's OptimismVaccine at com. On Twitter, at vaccine. Uh, our personal Twitter, Twitter handles, I'm at Steve Cuff. Steve Coleman is at Colmania. Steve, spell that for the people.
1: K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A.
0: Beautiful. There's a lot of B-sides out there. There's a lot of remixes. There's a lot of all kinds of stuff. We can't do it all. Talk to us. Tell us what we should do.
1: Help us. Help us.